The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ad Observer is by no means the only research project that Facebook has tried to shut down. But the position that they've taken in those cases, they may defend as you know necessary to protect privacy without actually contending with the need for independent research. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 19th, 2021. In October 2020, Facebook sent a cease and desist letter to two New York University researchers collecting data on the ads Facebook hosts on its platform arguing that the researchers were breaching the company's terms of service. The researchers disagreed and kept up with their work. But on August 3rd, after months of failed negotiations, Facebook shut off access to their accounts, an aggressive move that journalists and scholars denounced as an effort to shield the company from transparency. For this week's episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Alex Abdo, the litigation director at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, where, full disclosure, Evelyn will soon join as a senior research fellow. The Knight Institute is providing legal representation to the two NYU researchers, Laura Edelson and Damon McCoy. And Alex walked us through what exactly is happening here. Why did Facebook ban the researchers' accounts? And what does their research tool, Ad Observer, do? What's the state of the law? And is there any merit to Facebook's claims that its hands are tied? And what does this mean for the future of research and journalism on Facebook? It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 19th. Facebook shuts down research on itself. Alex, thank you so much for coming on. We have a fair amount of ground to cover, but before we jump into any of the big picture questions, I think it would be useful to get sort of into the weeds of what's going on here in this dust up between Facebook and NYU researchers. The discussion sort of often tends to fall into big picture questions about, you know, conflicts between privacy and research, and we will get to those. But let's start on the ground with the question of how the tool at the center of this current controversy, which is called Ad Observer, actually works. Can you give us a rundown of what the tool did before Facebook disabled the accounts of the researchers who are running it? Yes, absolutely. And let me just start by saying uh, it's great to be here. 
So AdObserver is a tool that uh, a few researchers at NYU, uh, Laura Edelson and Damon McCoy, make available to Facebook users who want to voluntarily donate data to the research that they do at NYU, which focuses on studying the proliferation of disinformation through political ads on Facebook's platform. And users who install the plugin, and it's, it's an extension for Chrome or Firefox, when they are browsing Facebook, the extension will collect the advertisements that are actually visible to them in their browser window and send those advertisements along with the why am I seeing this explanation that Facebook will provide you to the NYU researchers. There'll be no personally identifying or private information collected, no information about your friends. The advertisements are collected in a way that's not connected back to you. And they use that data to study political ads on Facebook's platform. And they also make some of it available to other researchers who are also studying similar things. Great. So just a couple of things to underline there or to clarify to make sure, because I think they're pretty important as we go on. The important thing is that the users install the, the app and consent to it collecting this data and that the only data that it collects is about advertisements that they see, nothing about their friends' posts or anything like that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's very limited information, but it's information that powers you know, their really important research. And they've used it to uncover a variety of things about how misinformation spreads on the platform. They've also used it to vet Facebook's own transparency offerings. You, you may know that Facebook makes its own archive of political advertisements available to researchers. And what Damon and Laura have been able to show you know, through their collection of data through the Ad Observer is that Facebook misses about 10% of political ads by failing to tag them using their own machine learning classifiers and also through several systemic decisions they've made about what qualifies as an advertisement and what does not. And so that's another important part of the research that they do is vetting Facebook's own transparency offerings. So more generally, what is at stake here beyond Ad Observer? What is this case? Why is it sort of stirred up so many emotions? Why should we care? Well, I think the core of the dispute is really about whether Facebook will allow independent research of its platform to take place. Facebook does allow, you know, what I'll call for lack of a better word, coordinated research of its platform. If you're a researcher and you want to sign up to get direct access to certain data that Facebook will make available to you if you sign very onerous restrictions, you can do so. And, and they have done a couple of these collaborations. One was the Social Science One collaboration that they did with the Social Science Research Council, which you know, by many measures was a failure, but resulted in the release of some data to some researchers. Uh, there's another study going on right now focused on the 2020 election involving some outside researchers and some inside ones. They allow that kind of research to take place. But what they generally do not allow is independent research of the platform. So if you're a researcher who does not want to tell Facebook in advance what it is you want to study, and you do not want to agree, for example, to allow Facebook to review your scholarship before you publish it, then the main path available to you is to collect data independently, often by signing up Facebook users to be a part of your study, you know, to contribute in a form of citizen science where uh, users of the platform will agree that they'll make certain information available, you know, consensually and often in a very limited fashion to enable important independent research. And Facebook's stance in the Ad Observer case suggests that they will likely never view that kind of independent research as acceptable, you know, as an initial matter because they claim it violates their terms of service. 
but more broadly because they claim that it intrudes on user privacy, even when the information is very limited, as in the case of the ad observer, and even when users are consenting very explicitly and meaningfully to, to the collection of the data. I think that's, that's the broader question. Is independent research of Facebook's platform going to happen or, or is it not? I just have to say, I love the moniker coordinated researcher behavior on Facebook. It's like the perfect juxtaposition to my favorite phrase in this space and a favorite whipping horse of this podcast, coordinated inauthentic behavior, um, which is just like this opaque phrase of Facebook's own definition about what can be done or not done on its platform. So that's great. I'm going to adopt that one. Let's talk a bit more about the current dispute specifically. So the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia, which you work for, and Ballad Spa are representing the NYU researchers, Laura Edelson and Damon McCoy, um, who are the people that developed this tool and, and had their accounts shut down earlier this month. So what is Knight representing these researchers in exactly? Is there litigation or what? what is the um, ongoing processes here? Yeah, and I should clarify up front that you know, we represent them individually. NYU obviously represents them institutionally, and we've been working very closely with the lawyers at NYU in, in representing their interests. But mainly what we represent them in is in responding to the cease and desist letter that Facebook sent to Laura and Damon last October. And about two weeks before the election, Facebook sent them a, a letter saying, take down your plugin, delete all the data that you've collected through it, and tell us that you're not going to put it back up. Now, that was two weeks before the election, right in the midst of research that Laura and Damon were performing on the election. They wanted to collect ads about, you know, that partisan actors were promoting at that time in an effort to kind of get people to vote one way or another so that they could study how how Facebook's algorithmic prioritization of content and how Facebook's micro-targeting tools could be used or, you know, if you prefer, exploited by advertisers on the platform. Uh, and that's when Facebook chose to send the cease and desist letter. And we have been representing Lauren Damon uh, since then, helping them in their negotiations with Facebook. And we have been in negotiations with Facebook since then, since about late October of last year, uh, trying to come up with a mutually agreeable arrangement in which Lauren Damon can continue the research, which, which we, you know, we think of as very important. And Facebook can ideally back down and withdraw its legal threat. I'm an optimist. I always held out hope that we'd be able to come to some arrangement that would work. And then uh, a couple Tuesdays ago, Facebook somewhat abruptly decided to shut down uh, Laura and Damon's personal Facebook accounts. And here's the kind of funny thing about this entire arrangement. Laura and Damon have personal Facebook accounts, which they have to have actually if they want to get access to the tools that they make available to researchers like the ad library API or the CrowdTangle tool. You know, these are tools that Facebook makes available and you actually have to have a personal account to get access to them. So when Facebook suspended their accounts, that shut off their access to these tools, which ironically does not actually shut off the ad observer. The ad observer is still up and running right now. And if um, you or your listeners want to download the extension for Chrome or Firefox, it's still available and they can do so and they can still submit data to uh, the researchers at NYU. What Facebook's actions have made much more difficult, though, is the other research that Laura and Damon engage in, because they do rely on Facebook's ad library API, and they do rely on the CrowdTangle tool to supplement the data that they get through Ad Observer, so that they can get a more holistic picture of what's going on on the platform, and also so that they can clean up that data and make it easier for other researchers to use. You know, one thing you'll discover if you 
dig a little bit too deeply into the world of the Facebook ad library API is that it's a very clunky and poorly maintained tool that a lot of researchers have had a lot of difficulty working with. And one thing Laura and Damon have done is they've spent the engineering resources to you know, design a system that works reliably enough with Facebook's ad library API, and they make that data more easily available to other researchers. So those other researchers don't have to wrangle with this broken system that Facebook holds out to researchers. And so do you have any sense of why it is that Facebook shut down the personal accounts rather than ad observer itself? It seems strange given that Facebook's ostensible concern was about the privacy of this data that's being collected. And as you point out, the data can actually still be collected. So what is the rationale there? Have they given any indication? They haven't, and I can only speculate. It's a little bit harder to go after the ad observer directly. And the, and the reason is that it is an independent plugin that people can install on their own computers. There's not a centralized registry of ad observer users that Facebook could target. And if it really wanted to go after the extension, it would probably have to go after the individual user somehow. And instead, you know, they're trying to you know, go after the researchers themselves in an effort to strong arm them into shutting down the research tool. That's my suspicion. I don't, I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, that's, that's what I would guess. Okay. So going back to the negotiations and, you know, you can give a no comment on this uh, if necessary, but one of the things that's fascinating here to me or stuck out is that in Facebook's blog post announcing the suspension of the accounts, they said for months we've attempted to work with NYU to provide three of their researchers the precise access they've asked for in a privacy protected way, but in the end they couldn't make it in compliance with Facebook's terms of service, but it doesn't actually specify the exact breach of the terms of service, but it does imply that there was a way in which this kind of research could be done with Facebook's permission or in a way that Facebook deemed acceptable given the months of negotiation. I, you know, those negotiations presumably were somewhat in good faith. So I wonder if what the sticking point was between what Facebook wanted and what the researchers wanted or what the exact breach of the terms of service was. Well, let me start with the latter and I'll think, I'll think about what exactly I can say about the former. So on the latter, it's pretty clear, you know, what Facebook thought the violation of its terms of service was. They have a term that says, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically you may not collect data from Facebook's products uh, using automated means without our prior permission. And Facebook's position is that the ad observer engages in the automated collection of the advertisements and associated targeting data that it collects. And for a variety of reasons, we think Facebook is actually wrong on this. But the bigger picture point to my mind is, well, the terms allow for Facebook to authorize the research, even if it does technically engage in automated collection. And the question is to Facebook, why wouldn't it authorize that research? Now, its main concern, the concern that is at least floated publicly is a concern about user privacy. But, and this gets back to the point I was making earlier, there is not a more privacy preserving way to study advertisements on Facebook's platform if you want to do so independently than to set up a system like the one that Laura and Damon have set up. Again, it involves the collection of very limited anonymous information on very explicit user consent. This isn't a situation where 
somebody installs a browser extension to get one benefit and they pay for that benefit through the collection of all this personal data, the only reason you install the ad observer is to donate data consensually to the NYU researchers. You don't get any other benefit from it. The benefit you get from it is that you're part of this you know, important citizen science. It's hard to imagine, again, a more privacy preserving way of engaging in this research. And so the question then you know, goes to Facebook, if you're not gonna allow this kind of research to take place, if you're not gonna exercise the option in your own terms of service to give prior permission to this kind of collection, then what kind of independent research of the platform is possible? And you know, I think Lauren Damon would be the first to acknowledge, and I would certainly acknowledge that there are genuinely hard questions about where you draw the line between the privacy rights of the users of these platforms and the needs of researchers to be able to study these platforms. But I don't think really any of the hard questions are triggered by or are raised by this particular matter, the ad observer matter. Um, I think there are far harder you know, questions involved in other research projects, but not really this one. And so that is what has surprised me and you know, why I've been a little bit, you know, I guess, disconcerted that we haven't been able to come to some accommodation with Facebook yet. But I still hold out hope. And uh, I think it's possible that Facebook will recognize with the backlash that you know, they've gotten since suspending Laura, uh, Laura's and Damon's accounts, that they'll come back to the negotiating table and, and we'll come up with some arrangement that works for everybody. So building on what you just said, were you surprised when Facebook finally pulled their access to Facebook? Was that something that you had kind of expected might be coming down the pike on the basis of your negotiations or did it come out of nowhere? I was pretty surprised. You know, anything seemed possible. We just, you know, don't know what exactly motivated the company. And I'm sure they have, you know, there are many different people who had many, many different views about how to handle this, this dispute. But I, but I was a little bit surprised and I wish things had gone differently and I still hope that they will. But I, I think Facebook likely underestimated how much of a backlash their attempt to shut down the ad observer would cause. And I think that's probably because they underestimated how much hope uh, the research community and also very importantly, a lot of major funders have placed in this model of studying the platform, the model being one where users very consensually agree to donate data. And I think one reason a lot of people have placed a lot of hope in this model is again, because there are really hard privacy questions and one way to at least mitigate the challenges of dealing with sensitive data like this is to proceed very explicitly on user consent to base your entire research model on having obtained you know research consent like this and if you think about it this is not a novel model for research this is basically the model that a lot of social science research takes place under or that medical science research takes place under where you have individuals you know agreeing to donate data you know, I, I was a college student once and I remember walking out of the dining hall and there'd be somebody at a, at a table trying to, you know, solicit my participation in some research study. And this is very similar uh, in a lot of ways. People agree to do it because they have higher interests in mind and the structure of the model accounts for the very real interest that people have in, in potentially private data. So I think Facebook underestimated the reaction that their actions would cause and Maybe that'll cause them to ultimately agree to some arrangement that works, but we'll see. 
I will say Facebook underestimating the negative effects of a hasty move is sort of a, an evergreen topic. I feel like that that uh, headline could summarize any number of things over the last few years. Right. But just to clarify, because I do think that there's been some sort of vagueness around this in the in the reporting. What specifically is the data that Facebook is upset about being collected here? So, you know, l- let me be very clear about what data the ad observer collects. And, and I should, you know, just as a point of terminology, this is very confusing. Laura and Damon run the ad observatory. The extension that has caused this friction with Facebook is called the ad observer. The ad observatory hosts data from ad observer as well as data from Facebook's ad library API and CrowdTangle. But the ad observer is the extension. And the, the specific data that ad observer collects is the following. It collects the advertisements shown to users, uh, which will include the image associated with the ad, the text associated with the ad, the name of the advertiser, as well as the disclosure string, which is the paid for by uh, string that you'll see associated with each advertisement on Facebook. And it also collects the limited targeting information that Facebook will show you if you select the why am I seeing this button, which is in a drop down menu associated with each ad. And none of that information is personally identifying and none of it is associated with the users because the ad observer does not collect unique IDs for users or anything like that. It doesn't associate each ad with it with a particular person who saw it. It just collects, you know, all the ads as individual elements stored in in the ad observatory. So that's the data that's that, you know, that's the data that's at issue. And I suspect what Facebook finds most, I'm not sure what the right word is here, maybe troubling, is the collection of ad targeting data, only because Facebook has so far made a very concerted decision not to disclose that data itself. Facebook does make its advertisements publicly available uh, in two ways. It has this ad library API that I mentioned before which is an archive of political issue and social ads that researchers can access. Again, you know, that system for accessing it is clunky and broken, but they have a tool available for researchers. Uh, And then they also have a public facing website called the ad library. Also kind of confusing. It's the ad library versus the ad library API, but the ad library, which houses all ads on Facebook, not just political issue or social ads. I forget exactly how long it hosts them, but at least all active ads are there. Once they become inactive, I think they might drop off of the ad library. Neither one of those tools provides ad targeting data. And the reason why ad targeting data is important is that it helps if your focus is trying to study the intent of advertisers and the efforts of advertisers to exploit Facebook's micro-targeting tools. If, for example, you want to be able to figure out that the Trump campaign targeted certain ads to suburban moms who listen to Rush Limbaugh and a different set of ads to uh, city living dads who watched Fox News or something like that. You're not going to see that. You're not going to know that by looking at the data that Facebook makes available, but you will see that reflected in the ad targeting data. So it's an important source for being able to study the spread of disinformation. And that's why Lauren Damon are really interested in it. And that's uh, in large part why they have released the Ad Observer. Okay, great. I think that's really incredibly useful detail that 
isn't necessarily always brought into this discussion, but is really important because, you know, as you have said a couple of times, there are some really difficult issues here. And if we're going to get past the sort of big picture framing of this is privacy versus research, um, I think it's the details that are really, really important. So let's play devil's advocate for a little bit then uh, and dig into some of those harder questions that you've been gesturing at, because I think there has been some controversy around this issue and it's good to sort of get out both sides. It's actually really interesting when this first blew up, um, with the cease and desist letter last year, I think there was a lot more sympathy for Facebook's position than I've seen in this current round of conversation. That might just be my perception, or maybe it's something to do with the extra detail that people now understand about the case. But I think the sympathetic argument goes something like this. If you're not following this super closely, it's that Cambridge Analytica is perhaps the biggest scandal that Facebook has ever faced. And in general, everyone's really angry at social media companies for harvesting people's personal data and not being careful with who has access to it. Cambridge Analytica itself involved an academic from the University of Cambridge that developed an app to collect data from Facebook and Facebook's users and their friends. And then they use that gave it to a political consulting firm, the notorious Cambridge Analytica. And that was bad. And everyone was really angry at Facebook. And so here you've got some academics at a university using a tool to collect data through Facebook. Why isn't Facebook's argument, or I mean, it doesn't sort of hasn't made this as explicitly, but I think the argument or the framing that it's trying to gesture at is, hey, you got angry at us about Cambridge Analytica. What do you want us to do in this case, which looks really quite similar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the you know, it is the elephant in the room and it, it is what is motivating undoubtedly Facebook's decision-making here. And I think there are really two critical points. The first, and I, and I want to actually get into this one second, but the first important point is that Ad Observer is absolutely nothing like the Cambridge Analytica app in a lot of ways. And, and I'll discuss that at length in a second. But the second point is that Facebook has to be able to distinguish between the Cambridge Analytica's of the world and the good faith researchers of the world. And if you actually spend the time to dig into what went wrong when it came to Cambridge Analytica's collection of data, it should be at least you know, relatively easy to come up with guideposts for distinguishing between the two. Because there's a world in which Facebook takes an absolutist position on the collection of data from its platform. And in that world, there is just no room for independent research. And Facebook may claim that you know, their position in Ad Observer and, you know, uh, the position they've taken on other research that has taken place. And Ad Observer is by no means the only research project that Facebook has tried to shut down. But the position that they've taken in those cases, they may defend as, you know, necessary to protect privacy without actually contending with the need for independent research. And so I think it's important to, you know, understand that at the outset, that unless you spend the time to distinguish between the two, the result is no independent research is allowed of the single most important forum for public discourse today. So what are the distinctions between Cambridge Analytica and Ad Observer? There's so many, it's hard to know where to begin. Let me start with, with some of the easiest ones. Ad Observer is an open source tool that collects limited and anonymous information about the advertisements shown to its users. And it collects no information at all about your users' friends, or you beyond limited demographic information that you can voluntarily choose to provide and that most people don't. And that's it. And Facebook can vet that source code uh, if it wants to, because the source code is public. Uh, the Mozilla Foundation has looked at the code and has said publicly that the code does what uh, Laura and Damon claim that it does. And on that basis, Mozilla actually recommended that its users download this tool to help the public understand 
disinformation and other pathologies of public discourse. That's not at all what Cambridge Analytica was. You know, you'll remember from the scandal that Cambridge Analytica involved basically a psychology test that you could take or questionnaire that asks you for consent to submit data about yourself, but surreptitiously collected data about all of your friends. And so I think about two or 300,000 people ended up installing the Cambridge Analytica app and it collected data, I think on something like 50 million people. And uh, worse than that, perhaps, the data was used not just for the narrow supposed research purposes that they claimed it was gonna be used for, but it was you know, sold and repurposed. Uh, and that's just very unlike you know, the situation that we have with Ad Observer. You know, it's an IRB approved study of a limited amount of data uh, that has been extraordinarily open with Facebook about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And again, if Facebook can't distinguish between the two, then the result is no independent research of the platform is allowed. And I just don't think that's a tenable situation for Facebook to allow to be the case. So part of what Facebook is arguing in this case is that its hands are bound because of a consent decree with the FTC. That's the Federal Trade Commission. And the Federal Trade Commission itself sent a pretty blunt letter to Facebook during the whole thing, basically saying that that's not the case. Before we get into the letter, though, can you explain the FTC's involvement here and also what the connection between the Cambridge Analytica debacle and why the FTC is involved here? Yeah. So after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the FTC investigated uh, Facebook's privacy failures. It fined the company $5 billion and it entered into a consent agreement with Facebook that basically requires Facebook to take certain steps to protect user privacy. And one thing it requires the company to do is to have a privacy program through which it monitors violations of user privacy and of its terms of service and enforces against them in an appropriate way. And Facebook, I forget when they first raised this argument in our negotiations, but I think fairly close to the beginning of them, claimed that its agreement with the FTC requires it to enforce its terms of service against the ad observer, against Laura and Damon. And we've always thought of that as a red herring for a variety of reasons. I think there are a lot of reasons why the FTC consent decree doesn't apply to what Laura and Damon are doing. But even if you thought that it did apply to what Laura and Damon are doing, it only requires Facebook to take action when somebody has violated its terms of service. And again, as I pointed out a while ago, Facebook's terms of service create an exception to the particular term they've claimed Laura and Damon have violated for when Facebook gives people prior permission. Again, prior permission to collect data using automated means. So if Facebook had just taken that step, which Laura and Damon have asked them to do, then the FTC consent decree wouldn't even arguably be implicated by Laura and Damon's research. And there are a variety of other reasons why, you know, I, I don't think the consent decree was a barrier to, to Laura and Damon's research. But, you know, all of that argumentation, I think, became a little bit moot once we heard from the FTC itself, which sent a very strongly... Uh, worded letter, as you said, to Facebook saying, our consent decree does not require you to shut down good faith research into advertisements on the platform. And to the contrary, understanding 
advertisements on the platform is consistent with the FTC's interests. And so we hope you're not using privacy as a pretext for other aims. And, you know, maybe in the entire history of this dispute between Lauren Damon, that was, to me, the singularly most surprising thing when the FTC very quickly weighed in. You know, I, I have not spent a lot of time in my career focused on the FTC, but enough anyway to know that it is not, that has not always been the fastest moving agency within government. Uh, but that was an extraordinarily fast response that they had to Facebook's reliance on the consent decree to shut down Lauren Damon's Facebook account. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I have to say, I found the letter quite amusing and a little bit cheeky. The closing line, we hope that the company is not invoking privacy, much less the FTC consent order, um, as a pretext to advance other aims. It's a little bit uh, a little bit cheeky, I thought. And I was wondering if this letter is, I mean, it's obviously about this current dispute, but whether it is also about the broader issue and whether it's had any effect either in this dispute or whether it might in the in the broader debate as we go forward about sort of Facebook's action here. Do you think that it's moved the ball at all? I, I think it's too early to tell with the company itself, but I hope the answer is that it has. You know, really interestingly, Facebook has not said a word publicly that I've seen anyway about this dispute since the FTC sent that letter. And my hope is that people inside the company realize that the FTC has created space for a more thoughtful and a more nuanced approach to when Facebook will allow uh, researchers to study the platform because they need a more thoughtful and nuanced approach. You know, a couple of years ago when we first focused on this problem, Facebook's terms of service as a barrier to independent research, you know, we spent some time trying to figure out what the exact source of the problem was. A lot of people have been focused, for example, on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is an anti-hacking statute that Facebook and the Department of Justice and some courts at the time had interpreted to apply to violations of a company's terms of service. You know, people had focused on that and whether the CFAA was, a, you know, was the main barrier to independent research. But we talked to a lot of researchers and we talked to a lot of journalists who do the same sort of work. And it all, at the end of the day, came back to Facebook's terms of service. And that even if the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act were out of the picture entirely, a lot of research and journalism that is in the public interest simply would not happen because of the risk of contract liability for violating Facebook's terms. And so we, in, in 2018, at the Knight Institute, sent an open letter to Facebook proposing that the company create a safe harbor within its terms of service for 
independent research and journalism that respects user privacy, uh, that does not otherwise impair the functioning of facebook.com, and that serves the public interest in better understanding the role that the platform plays in structuring and organizing public discourse. And this is going to sound like a pattern. We had about 18 months of conversations with Facebook about that proposal. And I don't want to, you know, mis mislead anyone. It, this, you know, this wasn't 18 months of constant conversation. It was sporadic conversations over the course of 18 months. But at the end of it, Facebook effectively rejected the proposal. And, you know, that was unfortunate. I, it may very well be that they rejected it because they decided that the FTC consent decree prevented them from changing their terms in this way, or at least provided a convenient excuse not to change their terms in this way. Uh, but my hope is that the FTC letter creates the space for those inside the company advocating for more transparency to come up with a similar solution, to come up with some other way of allowing the kind of research that Laura and Damon engage in, you know, good faith, privacy preserving research in the public interest to go forward. Maybe, you know, maybe that's a naive hope, but I, I think those forces exist within the company, you know, and, and they're certainly, you know, getting some wind in their sails by the public support for the Ad Observer Project and also by, you know, the seemingly universal condemnation of Facebook's kind of hostility toward that project. Neil Chilson, who was formerly the chief technologist for the FTC, has said that he thinks Facebook's concerns over a potential breach of the consent decree have some merit on the grounds that if the Ad Observer plugin somehow malfunctioned and private data was shared that shouldn't have been Facebook rather than the NYU researchers would likely be the party that the FTC would push to hold responsible. So in other words, as I understand his point, he's arguing not that the consent decree requires Facebook to boot off Ad Observer, but rather that the decree means that Facebook has a genuine incentive to be sort of extra careful here. What do you make of that argument? You know, I read Neil's Twitter thread on this and you know, to be honest, I found it a bit perplexing. Facebook every single day handles user data in a way that invites greater legal risk for the company than the Ad Observer project possibly could entail. Every day, Facebook allows developers to get access to certain data through its APIs. Um, every day, it analyzes that data and provides the insights about it to advertisers in a way that might implicate user privacy, but they made a business judgment that it is in the overall interests of the company to do those things. But all of those uses of user data are far more risky than the ad observer. The ad observer, again, is a, this you know, small but important tool that allowed people to share limited and anonymous information using an extension whose source code is public for review and had been vetted by maybe the only trusted name in privacy online, the Mozilla Foundation. And it's, you know, there are very few companies that people trust with their private data. And Mozilla is one of them. And I found it to be unpersuasive that that risk of, you know, liability justified Facebook treating Ad Observer the way it has treated it. To my mind, Facebook should simply have reviewed the source code, come up with, you know, some arrangement that allowed them to make sure in the future, for example, that they always had access to the source code, which of course they would because it's open, and that they would always have Laura and Damon's cooperation in reviewing that code, which of course Laura and Damon would provide because 
you know, they're privacy and cybersecurity researchers who value transparency. And that that would have been a good arrangement at the end of the day. And maybe that's where we end up. I hope that, you know, we end up somewhere like that. But I find it hard to you know, credit the idea that Facebook really had much to worry about when it came to uh, allowing, you know, if they were to allow the ad observer to, to run. And if there are any doubt about that, then I think the FTC letter, the one that they sent openly, should put it to rest. You know, the, the FTC made pretty clear that this sort of research is not inconsistent with their, you know, w- with their consent decree with the company, which, again, I think puts it back into Facebook's court, you know, to decide, you know, whether and how they'll allow this sort of research to go forward in the future. Okay, but let's say we're tired of relying on Facebook's beneficence um, for access to data about perhaps the most important channel of communication in the modern world. Is there something that lawmakers can or should be doing about this? I mean, it seems like Facebook's arguments would have to fall flat if lawmakers actually clarified the proper scope of the privacy laws and, as the FTC has started doing now, maybe clarifying the scope of the consent decree. So would that actually be plan A and we're in plan B land of trying to shame Facebook into being a better corporate citizen because Congress is falling down on the job? I, I think that's a, a fair assessment, but I think the reality is that we need to pursue all of these options at the same time because you never know which is going to hit and you never know you know, which actor is going to feel motivated enough to move quickly. But I think we need, you know, we need to try all these things. We need to try to convince the companies that they should be more transparent. We need to try to convince Congress to pass a variety of laws. And I think there are a variety that would be really helpful here. One would be, you know, mandated access to certain kinds of information. Another would be an immunity law that would provide some comfort to journalists and researchers studying the platform is that they're not going to be liable for violating terms of service so long as their uh, research respects user privacy and is in the public interest. And yet another would be a basic privacy law. So we have a clear sense in this country of what the bounds of protectable privacy are. I think the ambiguity about the state of privacy in this country perhaps has allowed Facebook to overclaim and to overstate what it is necessary for the company to do Uh, in the several instances in which it has tried to shut down outside research. I think all, so I think all of these things are necessary and, you know, we are trying to push on all of these fronts. You know, we've been representing researchers like Laura and Damon. We're actually working on a proposed bill that would immunize this kind of research from the threat of liability for violating terms of service. And I know that there are others who are working on legislation that would provide for different kinds of access, access to internal data that the companies hold. And it may be that this is one of the rare things that this Congress could agree in a bipartisan manner is necessary. Now, it's one thing to recognize that it's necessary and it's another thing to pass a bill. And I don't work in DC, but have spent enough time observing this recent Congress to know that the likelihood of anything getting passed is pretty small. But given the bipartisan condemnation of Facebook recently, uh, it may very well be possible that we get one of these bills passed. We may have found an area where 
you and Mark Zuckerberg actually might agree on this podcast, or at least uh, it appears so. Mark goes around yelling about how much he wants new laws in this area too. I mean, I can't listen to a podcast without hearing how desperately Facebook wants updated internet regulations. Did you know that the internet has changed a lot in the past 25 years, but internet regulation hasn't? Like that is, uh, it haunts my dreams. I hear that so many times a week. And I'm just wondering, like you sort of seem, it's, it's interesting or it's depressing, I guess, perhaps that we have almost all stakeholders interested in having more clarity here. We have, I mean, Facebook says it is, we have researchers that want it. Congress, as you said, there's sort of bipartisan agreement, um, but you still sound relatively pessimistic. Do you think that this has been high profile enough um, and there's been enough sort of controversy about it in this particular case that it might have moved the ball at all? I think so. And this does make me a little bit optimistic. Uh, You know, within a week of Facebook suspension of Lauren Damon's account, you know, four or five senators from across the political spectrum, you know, openly supported Lauren Damon and criticized Facebook. And they all recognize, I think, that we, we do need to better understand, as, as you said, Evelyn, you know, this most important channel of public communication. There's a real appetite. And, and I don't want to pretend that everybody is motivated to regulate social media by good intention. Far from it. But if we can channel the energy that there is, to regulate social media into good legislation, that would be great. And again, I'm you know I'm not a I'm not a DC expert. I try to stay stay away from it up here in New York. But I am at least a little bit hopeful that there may be enough momentum now behind the need for research that will get something in the next you know year or two. Maybe that is hopelessly naive, but it's hard to do this work and not be at least a little bit. So when it comes to either some kind of pie-in-the-sky legislation or if Facebook decides that it it wants to take the plunge and change its terms of service to really be clear that it allows this kind of thing, how do you think about the sort of distinction between academics and journalists in terms of who should have access to data? And the reason I ask is that once you get into the realm of journalists, it seems like things get fuzzy. I think one of the big trends of the last decade or so in journalism is that there's sort of been a decreasing importance in gatekeeping who constitutes a journalist and that, you know, people can do journalism without necessarily being affiliated with a big outlet or any outlet at all. So How would you draw the line there between people who should and shouldn't have permission? My instinct, so let me start by saying that I think journalism is extremely important uh, and and journalism focused on the platforms is essential. You know, research is essential too, but they just serve different purposes. You know, research often will give us statistically sound explanations of what in fact is going on, but before we know to train researchers on whatever particular problem we think needs to be studied, you often need journalists to provide anecdotal information that causes people to scratch their heads and say, maybe there's something there. And, and I heard this you know, articulated really colorfully by Surya Matu, who is a data journalist at The Markup, when he explained, and Evelyn, you were there when he gave this explanation on a panel that we held at a symposium at the Knight Institute at Columbia, he said that he feels like he's a health inspector. He wants to be able to get into the kitchen and see if there are cockroaches. And it's not especially important to him as a journalist that he be able to document just how many cockroaches there are in the kitchen. He just wants to be able to document that there are some so that we can focus our attention on the problem. 
And that kind of you know, anecdotal approach, I think can be very powerful in helping people understand the stakes of what's going on. You know, because as important as research is, it doesn't often inspire people to action in the way that journal, good journalism can. So I think it's important that we protect journalists who are studying the platforms. As to how to do so, which is your question, Quinta, which is a great question, I don't have a great answer. I, I think I would start by resisting the temptation to define a journalist and to focus instead on the act of journalism to protect you know, uh, journalism. And in the safe harbor proposal that we made to Facebook, you know, the, the one that would involve the company amending its terms of service, we took that approach. We took a functional approach to research uh, and journalism rather than you know, attempt to define researchers and journalists. And so my instinct would be the same, that we should protect acts of journalism focused on understanding the platforms. And they may not get the same kind of access at the end of the day that researchers do, especially if it's access to internal data that the company holds, where maybe a reasonable system would limit that access in, in ways that might exclude some journalists. But they need to be able to study the platforms at the very least independently uh, in a way that Laura and Damon are trying to, or that other journalists do. And, and to give you a great example, you could look at the markup, which has something called the Citizen Browser, which is a project in which they pay Facebook users to allow them to collect certain data about their experiences on Facebook so that they can report on what's going on on Facebook and the way in which different segments of society are shunted into different experiences online and how that may affect people's views, et cetera. It's an extremely important project and it's being run by journalists and they're getting great results from it. And by great, I mean results that are helping us understand the platform. And I think that is gonna be a model for trying to understand social media. And now you're actually seeing Mozilla is standing up a similar kind of platform uh, more ambitious in a lot of ways because they want to be a platform for other researchers and journalists to come to with questions that they may have about social media. And Mozilla will be the kind of intermediary between users and the researchers and journalists uh, in helping to collect the data in a, a way that is respectful of privacy. And so, you know, I, I don't think we should decide at the outset that certain things are, you know, are categorically off limits until we've had a searching conversation about whether the research that we need and the journalism that we need can be done in a way that respects user privacy. You know, that I think is the ultimate touchstone, but you know, the rest of it, you know, the precise methods and the precise people doing it, you know, I think, I think we should talk it through and should be a part of the conversation. So in the absence of Congress acting and with Facebook acting, but not really seeming to get into the difficult areas of trying to draw the complex lines and taking a fairly absolutist position and the FTC sort of dabbling a little bit, but not really getting involved, there is another actor here that is uh, that is relevant and that's the courts. And there's sort of a, a bunch of litigation floating around that's related to this idea of scraping and who can scrape and what are the limits of permissible scraping. And I know this is a bit of an unfair question, but just sort of more broadly, what's happening in the courts in this area and how is it relevant? Well, there is some litigation going on. There's actually not a ton when it, uh, as it relates to researchers or journalists. Um, and that's something that we have been very interested in thinking through is the possibility of litigation as a means of creating more space for this kind of research and journalism. 
the most important case right now in the courts, though, is one being litigated by the ACLU. It's a, a case called Sandvig. And Sandvig is a, a researcher, and there are a bunch of you know, researchers involved who want to basically perform the digital age analog to discrimination testing uh, that used to take place in the physical world, where, for example, uh, you would send applicants to an apartment, you know, a renter, potential renters to an apartment, and you send people who are similar in all relevant respects, but maybe are of different races to see whether the landlord is discriminating against, you know, one kind of applicant versus another. And that kind of discrimination testing is a really important way to suss out uh, discriminatory intent, which can be very difficult to demonstrate otherwise. And these researchers basically want to do the same thing online. You know, they want to study how uh, job sites algorithmically prioritize applicants to see whether they are embedding in their prioritization the same sort of societal biases that exist in the offline world. And it's an important case. It's focused specifically on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, not in terms of service. And the question it raises is whether this research can take place, notwithstanding the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. What I would like to see, and, and you know, and that case is ongoing, and you know, I, I hope it'll be successful. What I'd like to see, though, is more of an effort to push back against the application of the terms of service themselves. Because again, as I stated before, I think the terms are the root cause of uncertainty around you know, the research and journalism that we need to take place. And that uncertainty can manifest in a lot of ways that has a significant chilling effect on research. You know, at the most basic level, it creates a kind of liability that researchers have to take seriously before they engage in the research they engage in. A step up from that, it makes it a little bit harder for them to convince funders to support their projects if the funders know that the money they give might go toward a legal defense rather than the substance of the work. A step up from that, they have to worry about some of the journals that they may want to publish in. These are academic journals, some of which nowadays require you to attest that you have not violated a platform's terms of service in acquiring the data that your research is based on. And a step up from that, again, is the fact that because this research violates terms of service or is thought to violate terms of service by the platforms, we have not yet really developed a research ethos around how to conduct this research ethically. Uh, because it all takes place behind closed doors in hushed tones without researchers publicly talking about what the right model is for this kind of research. You know, the cumulative effect of all of that, of all of those pressures on the research stems from the terms of service and has the result of inhibiting you know, work that is, is urgently needed. And so that's why I'd like to see more focus on the terms themselves. And that's what we've been trying to focus on both through our uh, safe harbor proposal and also through our representation of people like Laura and Damon. And as you say, Evelyn, the courts are uh, an attractive target. And you know, my hope is that they would side with the public interest in the need for this work, but we don't yet have that case in the courts. If and when we do, we'll see how it comes out. Yeah, I think the chilling effect is a really important part of this. And while I'm very sympathetic and agree with you, you know, for us, it's great. Let's push against the terms of service and see where the lines are. You can be really sympathetic with the researchers who are sitting down trying to plan the next few years of their life uh, and what they're going to, you know, dedicate substantial amount of time into developing and things like that. And then there's this risk in the background that they could develop a tool, spend all the money and, and resources, and then just be shut down by Facebook. And that's not hypothetical. I mean, there was an organization called Algorithm 
watch uh, recently that was studying the Instagram newsfeed algorithm, similar sort of process of a, uh, an app that users consented to and downloaded. And they shut it off themselves after Facebook claiming that it violated its terms of service, saying that an organization the size of Algorithm Watch cannot risk going to court against a company valued at $1 trillion. And, uh, you know, uh, I can certainly see how for academic researchers that would be a big problem. That's right. It is, it is an especially big problem in jurisdictions where there is fee shifting. You know, in the U.S., you know, suppose Facebook were ultimately to sue Laura and Damon. If Laura and Damon were to prevail on that, you know, their costs would be the ones of their own lawyers, you know, and we're representing them, you know, for free. They wouldn't be on the hook for Facebook's fees, whether they won or lost. But if a platform were to go after a researcher in another country, and, and we've talked to researchers in this, you know, in this situation, you know, the, the risk to the researchers there is that they'll actually be on the hook for Facebook's legal fees because there is fee shifting in a lot of jurisdictions outside the United States. And so you might not just lose the case and have to shut down your research. You might be responsible for Facebook's very highly paid lawyers. You know, that's a substantial risk to researchers who are not, you know, they're, they're trying to convince fun funders to fund their work, not to fund their legal defense. And now for the weekly but YouTube segment of this conversation, <laughs> um, I, you know, I just have this thing that, and this may be more of a comment than a question, but we've spent this entire conversation talking about Facebook. And obviously this particular dust-up is about Facebook, but there should be other dust-ups about other platforms as well. I mean, obviously Twitter is pretty different because by a, its nature, so much of it is inherently public. And in fact, that creates other problems because there's so much research about Twitter when in fact it's quite a small platform um, just because it's practically easier to, to study. But YouTube matters and TikTok matters and these are really systemically important platforms um, and we're not sort of having similar dust-ups about them. I'm wondering, you know, have you heard of any researchers that are having similar thoughts or problems with other platforms or do you have any theories about why they are so effective at avoiding the spotlight and why we're talking about Facebook all the time? I don't have a great answer, though. I, you know, I I think about your your explanation of YouTube's actions here all the time. They just keep their heads down, you know, keep them below the parapets, and that seems to work for them. You know, but there are countless researchers focused on YouTube. There are countless researchers who are studying Facebook, uh, YouTube's recommendation algorithms, and trying to figure out, you know, whether the anecdotal sense that everybody is just three clicks away from a white supremacist video, who want to test that theory and see whether it's in fact true. And some of that research is going forward. We've talked to people doing that research and we've talked to people who are considering it. And some people you know, do worry about uh, YouTube's terms of service. And there's you know, undoubtedly research that is not taking place because of them, because like Facebook's terms of service, they prevent the collection of data through automated means. But I should say that I don't know of instances where YouTube has threatened researchers in the way that Facebook has. It may very well have. I just haven't seen it. I haven't seen the kinds of letters sent to researchers like Laura and Damon or others that we've seen uh, you know, issued by Facebook. And, you know, again, like I said before, Laura and Damon are not the only researchers or journalists to have gotten these letters. You know, one of the other very public ones involved Gizmodo journalists, Cash Hill, when she was at Gizmodo, she's now at the New York Times, uh, and Surya Matu, who I mentioned earlier, who at the time was working with Cash at Gizmodo and is now at the markup. They developed a tool that allowed Facebook users to collect Facebook's recommendations of friends. Facebook calls that the people you may know recommender. And 
cache in Surya, developed a, a plugin that allowed you just to systematically download those. So you could study them yourself. It wouldn't even send that data to Gizmodo servers. It was just for people to study themselves. And if they looked at them and thought, this is kind of strange, or this is interesting, and maybe somebody should know about this, then they could decide individually to then send an email to Cache or to Surya and say, hey, something funny has arisen in this data that you may want to look at. Uh, and even that project <laughs> attracted a, a very nasty note from Facebook saying, if I, if I remember correctly, it told them to take down their code from a public repository for their code. They had stored it on, on GitHub, and it said, take it down from GitHub and don't put it back up. And you know, that's shocking and, and, and troubling. But we haven't seen the same from, from YouTube, strangely enough. So what is next here? Like, has Facebook just won? It's shut down the tool. It's scared researchers. The FTC has sent a sternly worded letter, but not done anything else so far. Is your hope sort of just that they'll be publishing and that might make Facebook change its ways? Or is there something else we should watch for? Well, again, like I said before, Ad Observer is still working. If their goal was to shut down Ad Observer, they haven't gotten there yet. Our hope, though, is to continue to engage with Facebook and come up with a solution, You know, come up with some arrangement that makes everybody happy, that allows Laura and Damon to do their work and satisfies Facebook in some way. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to come up with that arrangement, but we don't have it yet. And you know, I, I can't speak to the exact nature of our of our negotiations, but I'm hopeful that we, we'll be able to to arrive at that point uh, at some point. And in the meantime, Lauren Damon are committed to their research, and the Ad Observer is still functioning. And uh, you know, some of their other research has been pretty severely impacted by the suspension of their accounts, and they're thinking through how to address that. But in the meantime, we'll push for a resolution with Facebook, and we're hopeful and. We'll continue to look for outside support and to keep the pressure on the company because if there's anything we know about it is that it is a behemoth that cannot be moved overnight and that can be moved, if at all, only through a sustained campaign of, of public and other kinds of pressure. And that's what we're hoping to mount. All right. That's all the time we have. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. It was a, a pleasure to be on. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth. The Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.